0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, it looks like another delay in COVID-19 vaccination as Johnson & Johnson announces delays. If we're coming out of the woods, why are we adding field hospitals? The majority of Canadians view China as our biggest security threat. Is the PM getting the message? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson,
1: Scott's son. So, if you're tired of COVID 19, we now have a royal family
0: feud. I can see a new reality show here. What's Donald Trump up to? Don't need a host. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 1210, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that, of course, through the website. Uh, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. Uh, all right, let's move on and uh, bring you up to date on uh, where we are. Uh, as I mentioned, J and J has uh, talked about some production issues. We are seeing the provinces uh, ramping up and trying to get ready for this mass uh, vaccination that uh, hopefully will start in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and he is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thanks,
2: Scott. Thanks very much.
0: So let's start with the Johnson & Johnson uh, delay. What can you tell us about that? And uh, from what I understand, their product wasn't coming in until later anyway. Is this going to affect Canada?
2: Yeah, um, my, my sense is that it, it you know, it probably won't delay things too much because of you know when when the when they were you know it was planned for them to to deliver to deliver the products but but i suppose the reality is you know any sort of delay you know can have flow-on effects and so so if there's a delay now then maybe that'll you know sort of you know cascade for a delay for us uh into the future but uh yeah it is uh you know it is worrying uh from the perspective that you know we've, we've seen that uh you know, Canada has experienced uh, delays from a from a range of the vaccines uh, and, uh, you know, all of that uh, is, makes uh, sort of planning for the distribution even more difficult.
0: So as a result, we're pretty much sitting where we are, hovering around the 40th position, I guess, in the world as far as, uh, as vaccine, as far as inoculation?
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one because, uh, you know, from what I understand, Canada has gone on a per capita basis, Canada has, has uh, secured, you know, more, more vaccines than anyone else in the world. Uh, but, but I think, you know, you know but we've not actually been able to get them and we haven't been able to administer them versus other countries that have been able to get them and have uh, gone hard in, in administering them. So, so it, is, it is interesting, but I think it, it also gets back to that uh, sort of the more longer, longer game that... Uh, Canada was sort of uh, betting on initially versus, you know, other countries that were trying to gobble up as, as many vaccines as they could
0: um obviously we're seeing the lightning speed that you the united states is going uh is vaccinating at thomas um and they're talking about may by having uh or, or spring certainly and uh, having everyone uh vaccinated will that change canada's situation in the sense that once the united states is vaccinated then we're going to see them ship stuff uh in other directions and and i think one of the first places that would go is north of the border so at at the end of the day could the US be are saving grace here because uh, as soon as they're done and hopefully if they're done by spring they'll start shooting extra across the border.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, definitely uh, that that would be a, a logical uh, sort of deduction that, that you know from their perspective, you know, they're looking after themselves and so then if they can get themselves to a, a you know a place where where they've got a you know a, a high proportion of the population uh you know vaccinated then the pressure's off them uh and so then then that means that there can be some pressure off in regard to the uh you know the the uh the uh what you know the order that uh, Donald Trump put in to say that you know american companies who are you know facilities in america couldn't ship ship out ship out of the country and so so at this stage that order is still in place and so so my sense is that uh until they until you know from a political perspective they feel that their uh the the pressure's off they they'll, they'll be holding on to that and uh trying to you know vaccinate their uh uh their population as quickly as possible.
0: Uh, we've certainly seen uh, the Center for Disease Control yesterday or the other day uh, set out uh, guidelines for those who have been vaccinated, and you know obviously they're they're moving at a good pace. That uh, uh, I guess in some states, 25% of adults have been have been have been vaccinated, over 10% around 10% fully vaccinated. So those people want to know what they can do. The CDC has released those guidelines uh, now. Of course, Canada is saying, well, what can we do? Uh, we can't. What what can't we do? Uh, you know, as far as where we are, but but really, uh, until we are fully vaccinated, and by that I mean two shots. Can we even think about that sort of thing? Uh, yeah,
2: like I, I definitely think that it's you know way too early from a from a Canadian perspective to be uh, sort of easing up on on the sort of current restrictions and and sort of saying you know you can go and do whatever you like to do. My you know sort of reading the CDC. Uh, guidelines and what I'm, you know from what i understand there's they are saying you know under certain circumstances if if you're vaccinated and you go and visit someone who someone else who who also is vaccinated or someone who uh, is at very low risk as in you know sort of particularly say children uh, and and based on you know based on what we know are the risk factors then then that that's okay and and I can sort of understand that from the perspective that uh you know, if someone else is vaccinated and you're vaccinated, even if you, even if you were tra- uh, infected and you transmitted the virus, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get it. And but the issue is, you know, and and that's one of the things that you know we're still waiting on on good information on is to understand whether or not uh, people, once they're vaccinated, are they still able, are they still communicable? So as in, can they still if they if they if they're infected, uh, can they transmit the virus to someone else? And, and at this stage, the as you know the evidence isn't there strongly enough to say that that they won't. So so given that, you really have to say, you know, still we the you know the the sort of social distancing, face mask wearing, all those other measures still have to be in place.
0: What about uh, Texas relieving their masking order and uh, saying that um, as vaccinations are increasing, and I guess uh, uh, I, I'm not sure that cases are going down there, uh, that they've, they've uh, relaxed the masking issue. A, a lot of people there are still concerned. Merchants are still saying, we want you uh, masking in our store. What are your thoughts of, of you know, again, coming up with guidelines is one thing, dropping a mask regulation at this stage?
2: yeah yeah yeah. definitely uh you know from what i see in in the us that you know wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is you know there's sort of gets down to sort of uh you know sort of uh you know you know uh constitutional rights that sort of people sort of want to uh talk about and 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 uh you know and sort of my you know my sense is that you know mask wearing is still you know a key thing to do and 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 uh and you know right at the moment with uh the the variants the the range of variants that are really starting to take hold uh we actually need to really really be you know double masking uh, now because it's it's really uh you know it's it's even more important now particularly in Canada uh but but i think everywhere you know uh, it's 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 sort of it's, from a public health perspective it's not a great thing to sort of uh sort of with, withdraw the masking requirements
0: It's interesting, Thomas, because uh, obviously spring is here, fatigue is heavy, uh, vaccines are on the horizon, that is a positive thing, um, however we're hearing about field hospitals that are being set up. Um, you know, Toronto's Sunnybrook, uh, 100 beds. We were talking to uh, the uh, head of the emergency table at Hamilton, and, and they've got plans for one uh, if needed. There's still a lot of chatter about a third wave, and and these hospitals, the one in in Toronto, being constructed. Now, I understand this was approved back in the first wave, which is kind of are, why are we doing this now, or are you that concerned? Concerned about a third wave? How come we're seeing this? Because this is something you, you, I, you know, I think you would you would see earlier on in this pandemic, not now.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, my sense is that uh, you know, looking at the, 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 the tracking of the cases, uh, I you know went on today and had a look, and and basically over the last few days, the numbers of cases are starting to go up. So we so we we hit a peak in uh, sort of January. The you know the measures kicked in and you know, and there was a you know a pretty rapid decrease. Uh, it's plateaued for the last you know couple of weeks, but now the the cases are going up again. So so that that's really sort of worrying because uh, you know based on the the various modelling predictions, if 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 the uh, the variants start to take hold and become really the dominant uh, type of virus in you know circulating in the community that's really going to uh, ramp up what what people are calling the third wave and and I think you know my sense is that with this sort of increasing cases that we're starting to see over the last few days that's indicating that that sort of in essence third wave is is, is already starting and so so if that's the case uh, that's going to really put a lot of demand on on health services and uh, and so uh, you know the numbers that they're projecting if if it actually occurs you know is quite a substantially higher than what we had in in january and uh you know we know that the health system was really you know, s- you know stretched o- to over overstretched in january and so so definitely they have to be thinking about additional capacity right now because it takes time to to get that in place so so i i think it's personally i think it's a good thing to be looking at you know sort of planning for april for additional in essence surge capacity in in the hospitals
0: uh, obviously being prepared uh, is best but what about these lockdowns lifting and in, in the hot spot areas even though it is limited
2: yeah yeah like like you know personally I, I i i would have preferred that they sort of didn't lift the restrictions because i think you know as as you know it, it, the, the prediction was that the uh the variants were going to start to to take hold and I think they said you know across Canada something like thirty percent or or more of the the new cases or uh, confirmed cases are all you know of the uh, the the variants and particularly the uk variant and and that you know because they have much higher transmissibility that it's you know basically this isn't the time to actually lift restrictions it's the time to actually keep the restrictions as in place as much as possible and and sort of lower, in essence lowering the restrictions is uh in you know encouraging more more uh contact of people with people outside of their household and and you know that that combined with what we're seeing with the num with the cases going up is not a good recipe uh it's it's not a recipe for keeping cases under control anyway
0: Uh, We've certainly saw the report that came out uh, this week that said uh, how much of an impact these vaccinations had on long-term care and our seniors and homes and such uh, now that they are pretty much uh, fully vaccinated or on their way to that. so and obviously, the the amount of death and 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 cases has dropped dramatically uh, in those institutions as a result. Um, if we do find ourselves in a third wave, uh, in many of these situations, you know the 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 wave uh, that we're in is is greater than the one that we've just come out of. Would that be the case now, considering we have uh, so many uh, seniors and and well, working on seniors outside of long term. Care, but even those inside long-term care uh, vaccinated now.
2: Yeah, yeah. My my sense is that you know we a lot of the really high-risk people uh, have been vaccinated, and so so that means that uh, you know that the the, uh, the 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 serious cases, the potentially you know the life-threatening cases, uh, you know, may be down a bit. But the but the, the problem is that if you've got more and more total number of cases. You know that the chances of of having you know of the system being overwhelmed is, is going to be there, but but definitely we're in a from a from the perspective of having more of the more of the most vulnerable people uh, being immunised, so that so they're at, at less risk of the serious serious impacts, serious outcomes. That that puts us it puts us in a much better position, but uh, but without sort of maintaining and holding fast in regard to the restrictions that sort of, you know, sort of puts us, doesn't give us the, maybe the advantage that we might have had if we'd, we'd held, held held fast on those.
0: Thomas Tenkate has been with us, professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, uh, giving you an update on COVID-19 and what the future may hold. Thomas, thank you for the time. Uh, all the best, as always, and uh, thank you for the input, and be well.
2: Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Scott. I really appreciate it, and uh, have a great day.
0: Uh, more polling going on, and it's amazing to see how our view of all of this is so fluid and so changing, depending upon uh, what is happening. As we, uh, It's certainly been uh, more than a year that COVID-19 has been in Canada. Uh, obviously, the, the number 19 means that it originated in the year 2019, late in that year, uh, December. Um, uh, but that being said, with it being a year and the anniversary, uh, certainly the anniversary around March break of when, Uh, the lockout started and people were basically told to go home Uh, most Canadians think a normal life won't return until 2022 or beyond that's due to a new Ipsos global poll, and um, it it seems to be justified in the sense that now Johnson & Johnson is talking about delays let's bring in Daryl Bricker CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and with us now Daryl thank you for the time I hope you're well i'm doing fine scott thanks so it's uh you know obviously vaccination is coming in but the, it is a a slow trickle but uh, canadians uh pessimistic about uh life getting back to normal and then uh, yesterday late yesterday we hear about a j and j that has been approved in canada uh delays on the horizon there uh your thoughts on how that may impact what your poll is saying
3: well canadians are kind of at one of those transitional points where they've been uh burned a bit before on the issue of vaccines in the sense that they uh you know they were uh, th- they heard one thing about va- the eminence of vaccines uh, the likelihood that they will have access to them they didn't necessarily hear the timing they just heard that you know that this was going to become a possibility and then things went sideways between uh the december announcement and you know a few weeks ago uh so they feel like they've been um kind of strung along a little bit and they're a little bit reluctant uh, to get completely enthusiastic about the availability of vaccines and the likelihood that that's going to lead to them being able to get out of the situation that they're in, which is for most of us locked up.
0: We do hear the prime minister uh, repeating basically the same message over and over again. Uh, They're on the way. They're on the way. Is that starting to frustrate people now?
3: Uh, it was initially, and then uh, what happened was that uh, uh, the, the, there seemed to be some progress that was taking place, and but now the expectations have been raised again. So the question is, what's it going to look like in terms of delivery? And, and ultimately, Scott, what people are going to decide this on is not what they're being told. It's by, by what they're seeing with their own eyes and they're experiencing in their own arms. So if they don't know people who are being vaccinated, you can say what you like at Queen's Park or you can say what you like in Ottawa. But until people see that they're being vaccinated and that um, and that uh, people that they know are being vaccinated and they now are seeing these, uh, 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 you know, orders that are requiring us to do certain things to uh, uh, that, that they're they're going into the past and that people are able to get back to life as they understood it. Until all of those things start to happen and harp happen in a reliable way, people are going to feel like they're on thin ice with this.
0: Uh, Obviously, there was some optimism uh, uh, within the last week or so as uh, more provinces in the country has decided to not reserve that second dose and just put the first dose into arms, which obviously uh, greatly speeds up uh, the process. Uh, Is that seen by Canadians as a Hail Mary? Because, uh, again, these are discussions we would not be having if the supply was there.
3: I think initially uh, there likely is not a clear understanding of exactly what the government is talking about, about people being vaccinated, and the difference between what being vaccinated is according to the people who are the experts and the people who manufacture these vaccines, and then what their political officials are saying about being vaccinated. So the question is if they're really talking about the same thing. Right now what it seems like is that the federal government is saying that um, what's happening is people are uh, being vaccinated when, in fact, all they're really being vaccinated against is the worst aspects of this, you know, minimizing the likelihood that you're going to end up in a hospital, but not that your whole life is going to be able to go back to what it was because you're really not vaccinated yet. So the question is, whether people, whether that's an acceptable strategy, and they haven't really figured out exactly what they're being told. I think there's a certain amount of confusion about this. But the interesting thing in all of this in the data is maybe people are a little wiser about this than even I'm suggesting, in which they're not really changing their expectations about how long this is going to take to open back up. And we're mm-hmm. still really pessimistic
0: about things um, uh, uh, turning around anytime soon there seems to be more attention focused on the provincial level like are the provinces going to be ready the provinces are going to screw this up because this is all going to land in their lap at once and then they're going to have to try to get all of this uh, executed Uh, and and we even talked about confusion uh, along the provincial level but Really, um, when you think of the federal messaging, is it not mixed when we're seeing on that uh, dose regiment whether to to wait or not or whether to use AstraZeneca on those over 65 or not? What Health Canada is saying and then the National uh, 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 Advisory Commission is saying it it seems to be two totally different things and and, and it would seem to be uh, better if they were on the same page with all of this.
3: Yeah, and it further explains why people are somewhat hesitant about um, uh, changing their expectations about how long it's going to take to open up. I'm, I remember going back to March when we first started doing polling on this, and we asked people how long this was going to last, and they said June. Mm. Um, we're not even thinking that. Right now, You know, 28% of us think that we're going to get back to a normal life this year. So we've really changed our horizons on how all of this is going to work and our experience is making us skeptical about anything that seems like it's too good to be true. Um, And uh, as a result of that, um, people uh, really require a very clear message, really reliable information, uh, so so they're they're, they're able to adjust their expectations accordingly. And right now, as you suggested, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, uncertainty around this issue, which has meant that we haven't seen a move uh, in which people are actually lowering or or moving forward their horizon where they think that they're going to get out of uh, out of the situation sooner.,
0: uh, this all stems uh, or, uh, at the end of the day for for the prime minister looking for an election looking to cash in on on popularity through the pandemic and and get that majority. Um, there seems to be this cynicism about the uh, inability to get vaccines uh, in, into arms. Yet these numbers seem still seem pretty high for the for the prime minister.
3: Yeah, they are, and and you know he's in an enviable position. How do you position. explain that? I mean, well, I, I think I think the, the the way the easiest way to explain it is that uh, first of all the the, the government, the, the liberals, you know, the way I'm hearing you know things out of Ottawa, you think that they were like at seventy percent in the polls. They're not. I mean, our poll uh, that we put out this week is one, one of the ones that shows them with the biggest lead, and it's only seven points. So, um, you know, they haven't broken away from the pack hugely yet, and they're facing uh, um, opposition parties at the moment who are at a tremendous disadvantage. I mean, they, you know, Jagman Singh, the leader of the third party, people would know him a little bit better. Obviously, Blanchette, who, by the way, in the province of Quebec, is ahead of, uh, of, um, of the Liberal Party right now. The BQ's slightly ahead of the Liberal Party. So there's a, some, you know, someone who's got some profile. And then we've got Aaron O'Toole, who practically nobody knows. And, and we know that even the Conservatives know that because they're out there advertising saying, hey, this is Aaron O'Toole. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're in a really unique situation in which they face an opposition that's not able to campaign the way it would normally campaign. So I think we're in kind of a bit of an artificial situation right now. Uh, and, um, the, uh, and, and, it should hugely advance the, advantage the incumbent government. And they haven't pulled away. So it's, it's, to me, I think it's, uh, just like it is with vaccines and people's expectations about what's going to happen, uh, how long we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be locked up and how long our lives are going to be, uh, curtailed and limited by what we're going through with COVID. I think it's a similar thing, uh, with, uh, uh with politics where we're really not sure. Uh, I think a lot of the numbers that we're seeing right now in terms of government approval at both the federal and the provincial level are really manifesting hope rather than actual
0: satisfaction. Uh, So uh, still think that the sweet spot for an election is sometime late spring, around June-ish?
3: Well, that's what we're hearing. I mean, you know, uh, uh, all all the people who uh, make a living... uh, projecting when we're going to be having election campaigns. And by the way, who don't know anybody, anybody else. Um, uh, they, they're seem to be suggesting that. But, uh, you know, it's it's not as easy as just saying, hey, we're going to have an election campaign. One has to be manufactured because, uh, you know, the government calling an election at this stage of the game would actually be breaking the Canada Elections Act. So they've got to, they've um, you know, justify what they're doing or they have to get the opposition parties to defeat them on the budget or some other vote of, uh, of non-confidence. And both parties have said that they weren't going to do it the two major parties have said they're going to, they don't want to do it. And they only need one party of the major parties uh, to be on side with the budget and vote for the budget in order for us not to, to trigger an election. So how that's all going to be manu- manufactured is, uh, is another challenge. So you know, there's a lot to happen between now and June in order for all those things to take place. And the government pushing back its budget further into April, uh, it does not suggest anything sooner. Uh, it suggests something maybe a little bit later.
0: Uh, that was my next point. Uh, obviously, the budget uh, now. No, 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 no. The the budget uh, obviously now pushing back into April. May, many are complaining. This is the longest time that uh, that we've ever gone without a budget in a situation uh, like this. Um, how how much of a trigger is this budget? Because if the liberals want an election, they'll put something in there that will trigger trigger it. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, the opposition has no interest in that uh, at this point, but. but but how much of a of a trigger is that budget? Do you think?
3: Well, the two most difficult words to hear in politics in a situation like this are "me too." Yeah. So as long as the the opposition f- can find a way to say "me too," uh, then they're in control of where this goes. So the government can put all sorts of things into the budget to try and trigger an election, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the uh, that the uh, the opposition parties are going to you know, pull up the rope and play tug of war. I mean, they, they they may just say, me too. I mean, if you're the Conservative Party, you could say, you know what? This is a really bad idea. Normally, I wouldn't vote for this. But we're in a pandemic, special situation. By the way, when we do have an election, you can absolutely guarantee that we'll campaign against this. And if we win, we'll get rid of it. But we're going to vote for the budget today
0: uh we have talked about this we have talked about this many many times um the longer this goes the more difficult it is for the prime minister and if this was to be over now if all of a sudden uh say biden opens up the doors and said we're vaccinated you can have the rest of ours and this happens uh you know by say june july uh is that enough to make people forget what's happened january february march well january february march which year yeah, <laughs> uh,
3: that's, uh, that's, <laughs> they're all blending uh, I mean, into one now. Uh, that's the thing. I mean, what you know, I I wrote for Global News, you know, what you're marking today was something I talked about, you know, and, and everybody knew, I guess, you know, a couple of months ago. We, we We now move from talking about the weeks that we lost from the months that we lost. The year that
0: we've lost. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about that that just last night. Yeah. And, you know,
3: just like that old joke that somebody in the U.S. government once said, you know, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, pretty soon you're talking about real money. It's the same thing with time. Um, You know, when you take a year out of someone's life, that is a significant, understandable loss.
0: You know, we mm, were just yep. talking about that about that very topic around the dinner table last night and some friends of ours that are uh, older in age and want to travel, and, and that's what they were going to be doing the last couple of years, and this has all sort of been stopped for them. Uh, you know, whereas we as a family complaining because my uh, daughter didn't get a high school graduation and it doesn't look like that was last year, my uh, son going out of grade 8 will get one this year. So, again, how significant is that one-year point? Like, oh, my God, we're going in for... A another round of this.
3: Well, really significant. And, and so the question is, do you
0: thank the person who led you through that? Well,
3: you know, back in the end of World War II, Winston Churchill was defeated two months after the end of the war. I mean, so, you know, thing, these things can transpire in funny ways. And I know I'm hearing a lot of stuff out of ottawa these days about you know this being a slam dunk or whatever I, I i the last one was supposed to be a bit of a slam dunk yeah and you know the, the conservatives ended up winning the popular vote with the weakest leader that they've fielded since uh you know since uh kim campbell um so you know you, you never really know what's going to happen and and the part of this scott that i that i think is going to be really interesting is how people feel when they come out of it. Yeah. Is it gratitude or is it relief if it's gratitude, that would be one set of political implications. If it's relief, it might be another set.
0: And, and to add to that, Daryl, what is the plan moving forward? Now that we're out, what do we do now? What's the, what's the path we take?
3: And, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the space of the last year is that what the, um, uh, the COVID crisis has done, the pandemic has done, has exposed A lot of the really vulnerability, the the serious vulnerabilities in Canadian society and the inequalities that exist, for example, and the issues that, you know, we've papered over with rhetoric and other things that became very, very real and amplified as a result of what we went through. So the question is, who's got the best plan for that? And not to mention, you know, our our national debt is totally out of control. And even when you go out on surveys and you ask people, are you worried about the deficit? We haven't suspended our our belief that deficits are a bad thing in this country. You can't tell people for two generations they are bad things where all of a sudden they're going to change their view of that. Um, This is something, by the way, the federal government uh, is, is on, in terms of interpreting public opinion, I think is missing the boat on. They still think deficits are bad things. And emergencies, you know, okay, but, you know, this is, these are issues that people are going to be confronting. The government's going to be confronting. People are going to be looking for a plan, but not just from the government. This is the opportunity for the opposition parties to come forward with something really appealing, novel, important, different and we really haven't
0: seen anything from them no one is going to want to have to pay this bill but it's inevitable Um uh, whoever wins the next election they've got a tall order ahead of them
3: yeah they will be uh, the proverbial dog that caught the car yeah. you know you, you chase that car you catch it by the wheel then what do you do with it <laughs> right? absolutely it's, it's gonna be a tough one
0: Daryl Bricker's been with the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, uh, the uh, article on globalnews.ca. Most Canadians think normal life won't return until 2022 or beyond. Uh, Daryl, as always, thanks so much for the time, and uh, be well. You too. And all the best to your listeners. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900CHML. One, two, three, four, nine. and still not working. Oh, sorry about that. Are we on? I'm just trying to. Um, <laughs> I'm celebrating the uh, almost year anniversary of the Scott Thompson Home Show, uh, and I'm using the the mic, the spare mic that the station gave me. Thank God we've got two here uh, because my main one has busted uh, just seconds before the show is going on the air. Uh, Will say, Scotty, you there? Scotty, you there? Scotty, you there? Sorry, still not working. Scotty, you there? It's like, oh, man, my mic's broken. So now, uh, when the news is on, uh, I'm in the process of soldering it all back together. Thank goodness I've still got my old DJ kit with me from 30 years ago. So when this sort of thing happens at the big uh, Lions Club party or the Rotary Banquet, Daddy can keep the party going. Uh, Oh, yeah, we're on. Here is today's Daily Commentary. You have no doubt heard about the controversy surrounding Prince Harry and Meghan and their relationship with Buckingham Palace. The damaging Oprah interview included everything from racism to mental health and has turned an ugly spotlight on the monarchy. The Queen's statement in part says, The issues raised, particularly of race, are concerning and will be addressed by the family in private. This issue is anything but private and will take more than a five-line press release to resolve. Harry and Meghan are needed within the royal family for the monarchy to be seen as progressive and still relevant in today's world. Queen needs to not only address these issues, but she also needs to call out anyone who is responsible for such archaic and painful policy. Simply put, she needs to clean house. Or the palace. Or castle. Or the firm. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, we uh, certainly know uh, how this uh, global pandemic has affected uh, healthcare in Canada and has shone light on uh, its inefficiencies and, uh, well, as it has with a lot of weaknesses uh... within industry within the government uh... and 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 long-term care and uh... personal support workers uh... certainly we know the story there and as this uh, ravaged uh... the long-term care homes in the first wave uh... it was just burning out psws uh... like we couldn't believe and the the word went out that we need more of these great people on the front lines to help us and uh... as a result result, a uh, accelerated PSW training program uh, has been developed to try to get more and more people into uh, this field. Let's bring in Wendy Lawson, Dean of Health Sciences and Community Services at Mohawk College and is with us now. Wendy, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. Pleasure to be with you this afternoon.
0: It's been fascinating how we've seen the the focus and the spotlight be put on PSWs and others on the front line of our healthcare uh, system, and, it, and has focused some weaknesses and such. Talk about what Mohawk College is offering and uh, and what this program is all about.
1: Sure, it'd be my absolute pleasure. Um, Mohawk College is really proud to announce that we are now accepting applications to our new PSW intensive program. As a participant in the province's initiative to accelerate capacity building in the healthcare and community care sector. Um, as you mentioned, on Monday, the province announced funding, which offers an opportunity for students to engage in a PSW training program, which is tuition free and promotes early entry into the workforce. Um, so currently, Mohawk College is recruiting and preparing to welcome 360 new students into our personal support worker intensive program. Um, with intakes in April, May, and June.
0: So, is the tuition free for everyone, or uh, I understand for the first six thousand or so? But it's it's not like it's a a a grant or a scholarship or a bursary. This is is available to those who apply.
1: The funding that has been made available by the province is specific to the accelerated PSW program and each um, publicly funded Ontario college that's participating in the program has an enrollment target, which is allocated towards that funding. So um, at Mohawk College, we have 360 seats available in the PSW intensive program, which are funded through this initiative, um, with intakes happening throughout the spring.
0: So what is... is
1: Sorry, Sorry. I, Go ahead. I should mention, in addition, the funding initiative also offers tuition assistance to um, improv PSW students who started their PSW programs in January, which is which is great um, recognition of all the hard work and dedication that those, those learners are showing.
0: Now, would this program be similar to other PSW programs prior to the pandemic or has this been designed specifically to to obviously accelerate the, the situation?
1: I think one of the really important points about the PSW intensive um, and accelerated initiative is that it does culminate into an Ontario College certificate as a personal support worker. So the vocational learning outcomes um, mm-hmm. are the same as in personal support worker programs, which we've seen um, in our two semester delivery model. Uh, the The packaging of the program, the delivery of the program has been designed to be accelerated in nature and to offer additional flexibility and accessibility um, to promote choice and access uh, for learners in a variety of different life situations who are seeking a, a career in healthcare.
0: So if you're signing up for this, would you want to continue on with your PSW course after this? It seems this is designed to get people started, uh, do you need to keep going in order to Get a diploma, be certified, what have you?
1: Nope. All of the vocational learning outcomes that are the requirements of the PSW certificate are incorporated into this program. It's in an intensive model. Right. So um, participating in this program does result in a full PSW certificate at graduation.
0: Wow, what a great idea! So, uh, what's the bit of the response been like for this?
1: Well, it's been really exciting. Um, We've heard such positive responses from the community and from a variety of stakeholders. Um, We have deep, um, strong partnerships in the community with employers in community care, um, long-term care and home care um, and across the sector. And certainly we have partnered with them previously to meet their needs in recruitment. Um, But this is an opportunity to really bridge, um, bridge that need and to promote a facilitated pathway from recruitment into the program, access and supporting the education, graduating students, and directly um, putting them into locations that, that really need that assistance.
0: How big um, a short, how big a shortage is there for this industry right now?
1: It's an interesting question and a, a very dynamic one. So the the need we know um, was there prior to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, we've faced uh, a care crisis. Um, across the province in Ontario for some time. Certainly um, COVID-19 has exacerbated that situation. Um, I think that without, you know, speculating on the need, which is extremely dynamic, I think it it might be worthwhile to talk a little bit about the scope of the initiative. So just to provide um, some sense of the impact this could have on Hamilton specifically, in the last Two semesters that we have welcomed PSW students into our program at Mohawk College, it has been in the order of between 75 and 100 learners per semester. So we saw 96 PSW students enter semester one in the fall, uh, 76 in the winter of this year. So to think of engaging 360 additional PSW students and graduating them between um, September and November. That really is going to have a significant impact on our community locally in their recruitment efforts
0: boy that's good news um, what about the challenge of this job because obviously this pandemic has pointed out how difficult this is uh, many PSWs uh, jobs in more than one place in order uh, to get a you know a full week of employment and stuff uh, a lot suffering from burnout uh, how do you prepare for that is this changing the way we view uh, the work of PSWs this this pandemic
1: Well, certainly there has never been as much attention, um, and and there always should be, on the importance of the role of the PSW as part of the care team. Uh, Personal support workers are integral to the community of care in our region um, and in our province. So I think that there are many, many factors that need to be considered in building out a workforce and maintaining a workforce that is going to have a long-term impact on the sector. Um, but we, we are seeing um, a renewed you know, interest and enthusiasm for celebrating the work that personal support workers do. Um, we are working closely with our partners to ensure that there is a deep understanding of the, 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 the work, uh, the attributes that are required to be successful in the work, and that there are opportunities for ongoing support, mentorship, and professional development as new graduates enter into the profession. So it's definitely a, a team and community effort to celebrate what personal support workers do for our community, for our families. Um, but it's, it's work that we're, you know, we're all in it together. Um, and it's really uh, an opportunity for our community to, to come together to, to celebrate and promote this, this important profession.
0: What would, uh, give us an example What what the course study would be like. What do you learn in, in, in the course to become a PSW?
1: Certainly. Um, the, the program of studies at Mohawk College in our personal support worker intensive program is divided into two semesters. The first um, 11 weeks are theoretical and um, simulated skill development and labs and simulations. The program itself is designed to be flexible, so the theoretical components are largely virtual and asynchronous, um, providing a lot of flexibility, um, providing theoretical knowledge on foundational care skills, communication skills, um, the uh, opportunities to uh, work with families and clients and other members of the healthcare team. To assist persons in all aspects of care related to activities of daily living, um, which includes things like feeding, lifts and transfers, bathing, um, skin care, oral hygiene, um, and and also really important related tasks associated with um, documentation, safety, and companionship. So it's, it really is a, an important role. Um, following the, the didactic portions of the course, uh, the program also includes a paid work placement, which allows learners to apply some of the information that they learned in face-to-face and virtual classes um, in a work environment in one of our partner's um, long-term care homes or community agencies. Um, this paid placement is 300 hours. Um, And that provides that opportunity for learners to work with other PSWs, with clients and patients in real scenarios to to really start to apply those skills and develop that experience.
0: We've heard what a tough job, and you can only imagine how uh, tough a job this is. What about challenges for PSWs once they get out of this course? Who who makes, what makes a great uh, personal support worker?
1: I think really it boils down to a desire to work as part of a team. Um, people who are interested in healthcare, who are interested in, um, in, in listening, in um, empathy, in nurturing, in caring for, for, for other human beings. Um, recognizing that the work extends beyond the patients and the clients, um, it extends to the families, it extends to other healthcare practitioners. Um, and the entire support network for, for individuals that PSWs work with. Um, so it, it certainly is a, a very rewarding profession and a very important one. As you mentioned, one that, that requires certain interests and attributes um, around care and communication um, and empathy for, uh, for the clients.
0: If you want to find out more, where can we go, where, where do we start?
1: Fantastic. Well, we are accepting applications currently um, and there is information available on how to apply through the OCAS system on our website at Mohawk College. Um, Just need to search out the personal support worker intensive program. Um, And uh, like I said, we are super excited to um, support new learners and new frontline healthcare professionals um, through this journey. A wonderful opportunity for community, a wonderful opportunity for employment, Um, and certainly a wonderful opportunity for the healthcare sector. So encouraging anyone who is interested in this exciting career um, to visit our website or give us a call, and applications are currently available through OCAS.
0: Wow, what a great idea. And if you're ever thinking about uh, getting into the the world of a personal support worker, this is certainly the time. And, my goodness, the opportunities are, are endless, it seems, at this point. Wendy Lawson with us, Dean of Health Sciences and Community Services at Mohawk College, talking about their accelerated PSW training program. Applications are now being accepted at Mohawk College if you want to venture into this career. Wendy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. So I know we were all quite optimistic earlier on. In the show, when my microphone broke, like literally 30 seconds before he we went on the air and had to do a fast switcheroony. And then, you know, I started playing with it uh, when the newscasts were on and thought, you know, I, I know a little bit about this. I can rewire this puppy. I have a soldering iron. I can fix this. And was trying, doing the, uh, I was trying. I had the soldering iron right here on my desk, uh, in my studio. Uh, well, the uh, news conference was on. And I thought I had had success, but now, no, I ended up uh, I, I there's three wires. I got one resoldered, but then another one came off. So, yeah, <laughs> Thank you very much. The one armed golf clap. So uh, now what Daddy thought he uh, could do on his own, he now has to. Call on the great help of the engineers back at the station to just simply give me a new one, please. Uh, Anyway, hey, that's just uh, part of the deal of working from home, man. You know, I've been using this thing for like a bazillion years. Everything is working tickety-boo, but you burn it out every single day. Look what happens. You know, I think when I go back to the station, I'm going to grab some some pens and some paper as well. I'm going to raid the supply cabinet. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, China and what our feelings are towards uh, this country and the Chinese Communist Party uh, that uh, now seem to be uh, putting the boots to uh, many of the uh, much of the free world and has caused a lot of debate in Canada over the last little while uh, article in the National Post majority of Canadians view China as the biggest security threat with global war of attrition already. Underway. This is uh, a uh, poll from uh, Maru Public Opinion. Let's bring in John Wright, Executive Director of Maru Public Opinion, and is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes,
4: yeah, Scott, it's, it's good. It's, um, it's nice to touch base with you.
0: So let's talk about the data itself. What does this, uh, this latest uh, poll tell you?
4: Well, it tells us um, a couple of things. Number one is that the majority of people in this country actually believe that we're at war. Um, that there really isn't going to be, to these people, um, uh, a big clash of the titans like World War II or the Korean conflict or World War One. that, in fact, it's going to be much more stealth-like and that what we're witnessing around the world in terms of cyber attacks, attacks on satellites and a series of other things that, you know, just go be- below the radar, in fact, amounts to war, especially if you are having state-sponsored, terrorism that way. Uh, number two is that when we ask people um, to identify what threats various countries are to Canada, um, because you and I know that you know, they are doing everything from cyber attacks on governments um, and businesses, influencing elections or promoting disinformation, like flexing that economic and military muscle. We had China at the top at 52% as a high security risk Russia followed at 42, North Korea at 39, Iran at 33, and Saudi Arabia at 24. So this poll was done for what is called the Conference of Defense Associations. They have run an annual Ottawa conference on this area of defense for 89 years. It's attended by some of the top military and political people from around the globe. It started today. And this was a really big framing, I think, of what they were going to be talking about over the next few days.
0: Uh, One thing we want to make uh, perfectly clear, because we are hearing uh, in various polls that there is more prejudice, more attacks on uh, Chinese Canadians as a result of this, and we want to stress this is not about uh... chinese canadians this is about the chinese communist party and the influence it has over those people including here in canada still uh... as they are on our soil and as this problem gets worse john it gets more and more difficult for chinese canadians doesn't it It does so let's set aside
4: the pandemic for a moment which was badly labeled um, with terrible consequences by uh, former president trump and his regime um, and that there are many who are suffered needlessly from persecution because of that, uh, I can say that I have been to china i 've been to Hong Kong, I have seen in my own eyes you know not the protests per se but two different countries and what I think is important for Canadians to realize is that with the takeover of Hong Kong by the Chinese. And even within the last month, there have been many of those who protested previously, with um, the Chinese government coming down hard on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong that existed before. um, That, in fact, every 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 person that was standing for election, in fact, has been arrested since. I I mean, it's a totalitarian regime, and how it is seen and what's more sinister about it is the fact that they have reached out and said if you are a chinese citizen a student who may be living in canada um then you better watch what you say because your family may be affected back here in china itself so it, it is a difficult situation for chinese canadians they 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 run the risk of putting family and others you know, in harm's way, potentially, if they open their mouths here and even protest what's going on there. So, yeah, it's a double edged sword this year for many who are Chinese um, origin in our country. One, the label of the pandemic. And secondly, not being able to speak up from a democratic country like ours to what's going on back home or in places close
0: to it. It's amazing how much control the Chinese Communist Party can have over Chinese Canadians here in Canada. Um, and we've had guests on the show who are who are trying to stick up for those in Hong Kong or, or uh, the Uyghurs in China. And they're telling stories of being harassed over here and family members just disappearing back in China.
4: Well, and this is really the definition of... Um almost a clandestine war that's been going on, not only with Chinese people who are here because it's making attacks on them in, in that kind of a state, but also the perpetuation of attacks on other government areas. We hear about it. It's not as if Canadians have been living in a vacuum. Um, they've heard about the cyber attacks. They've witnessed what's going on, and whether it's related to the two Michaels who are are in prison in China that we've been trying to get out, and whether or not it's linked to um you know, Canadians honoring the, the um, treaty with the United States where it is holding, uh, an executive of, uh, Huawei in a, you know, going through a legal process out in, in British Columbia. I mean, nowadays, we, we aren't living in an era where China is seen as a beneficial member of the global order. It is seen as a group of of, of individuals who are managing a, a country and flexing its military, political, and public uh, muscles whenever it decides to do so, and mainly because it can. So, you know, I think that this is really the only other thing that we've witnessed is how it retaliates. And if you go to Australia right now, they will tell you. That raising um, a complaint against the Chinese being in that Pacific waterway uh, has led to them being uh, persecuted by the government by being shut off a lot of their imports and a series of other things. So, yeah, it's flexing its muscles wherever it wants to.
0: Uh, you've used the phrase uh, global war attrition All uh, with a global war of attrition already underway. Many have said uh, on this show that uh, China is winning World War III without ever firing a shot. What do you mean by a global war of attrition already underway?
4: I think the best phrase that Canadians relate to is a death by a thousand cuts. It's not a one thrust and you're done. It's It, it literally is a bit by bit every single day. And I think it's fair to say that both Russia and China in an international context have um, provided state-sponsored attacks on um, individual governments and on businesses in terms of intellectual um, property around the world. You know, you you could just Google the two countries' names and and cyber attack, and you will see, you know, things are happening all over the world. So I think the critical issue is when – is war an actual war? Does it have to be done on a field of battle? Or is it simply, you know, when you are exercising almost military-grade intelligence gathering um, and the disruption of another country's um, way of life or the importance of their government, influencing election campaigns, um, stealing things from them, um, shutting down sites, I mean, it's not a weapon that would have been considered before 2007 when we all got our first hands-on an Apple iPhone. It's not been that long, but it is weaponized today, and it's used by state-sponsored attacks on other countries. I think the majority of Canadians really believe that we are already involved in a conflict, which is the death of a thousand cuts that, you know, is a global war. I, I would also say, though, that there's, roughly three in ten, who believe that there is not a current, nor is there likely to be a global war, that these tensions will keep everybody in check. But only 16% of the entire population believes that we're going to go back to the old way of fighting wars, and that is that we're ending up in a military conflict that's going to be like the crash of a symbol. So I think Canadians, as well as other people, are defining war differently today than they would have done even 20 years ago
0: obviously uh, this Maru poll saying that uh, Canadians view China as the biggest threat uh, it's been pointed out several times that the Prime Minister has a soft spot for China even uh, trying to ink a deal, a production deal with a Chinese company way back uh, a year ago uh, in order to get some Canadian production as far as a COVID-19 uh, vaccination that being said, obviously what this poll says that's thats contradictory and and with, with uh, China China's already heavy involvement into our universities, our healthcare, our military uh, businesses. Is this going to change?
4: Well, I think there's a couple of statements there that we've got to parse. Um, Number one, as the prime minister of a country, you've got a lot of different things on your plate. You're not able to take one side or the other side if you don't have the ability to um, deal with it um, as as a forcible defense. I mean, when some of these issues were raised a couple of years ago, uh, China immediately stopped importing beef and canola uh, from Canada. I mean, that really had a terrible effect on Western Canada. And it's been done in other places too. I don't think that there's a country on the planet of this earth at the moment who doesn't know that the Chinese are certainly a force to be reckoned with. And if you look into Africa, and as a part of South America, what the Chinese have done is go in and say, look, if you want to have a new Panama Canal, we'll, we'll pay for the whole thing to be done. But, you know, when it's over with, we'll own the rights to it, and you can join our Silk Highway that will help yeah. you get from the next area. So I think the prime minister's in a tough spot, but I think what this poll shows is that there's a reservoir of support um, that, that understands firmly um, the predicament that he's in.
0: How do we become less dependent on China and more self-sufficient?
4: Well, there are certain things we're going to – we're always going to be ordering from China.
0: Yeah.
4: I don't know because if it comes down to a cost factor, um, then much of what we buy today, uh, whether manufactured in pieces over in China and shipped to us or online, I mean, it's a cost its a cost issue. I think what it says, however, is that we just have to be vigilant. Each individual Canadian, um, whether they are buying something and they can find the source of where it's coming from, has to make a judgment whether or not it can be produced in our own country or in some other place. There's clearly evidence of a social movement within the last decade uh, where people check where running shoes are made or car parts come from if they have a choice. And it, it may be a bit of social shaming at the moment, but let's also keep in perspective that China is a huge part of the international economy that this year they're, or next year, likely to very much become the biggest engine in the planet. And as a result, it's pretty tough to avoid finding things without Chinese stamps on it um, that that they've made that we need.
0: Uh, the last 10, 20 years, China has been the golden goose, now public enemy number one. Are you surprised we've gone from from there to here? Uh, many were hoping, especially with the Hong Kong issue, that China would become more than, uh, like Hong Kong as opposed to trying to take it over and now make Hong Kong more like China. Uh, are you surprised that they've gone on the world stage, that they've fallen to where they have?
4: Well, I'm not surprised because in the context of military exploits and threats to Canadian security, the Chinese have demonstrated over the last number of years um that they're up to that challenge. And secondly, because we've had an intimate relationship with them as a result of the two Michaels who are still in prison and uh us you know, dealing with it here in British Columbia and through our own court system. With the Huawei executive, I mean, it's it's being pretty much front page. We we all understand that there can be threats. I think that Beijing is going to try and um, alleviate some of that perception when the Olympics get gets to China. Um, but even there, you know, you you may be able to put on a good show for a few weeks, but it's not going to take away what really needs to be done, and that is um, for diplomacy to work around the world as opposed to simply muffling in on things and threatening other countries. So I'm not surprised that Canadians have it this way, but I think that Canadians are also recognizing that if you're going to deal with China, you better deal with them with soft gloves because the retaliation – um, can be very significant, and you want to work with them somehow as opposed to simply and strikingly in their face against them. That's, that's not the way of the world nowadays.
0: John Wright has been with us, Executive Vice President of uh, Maru Public Opinion. Uh, the article in the National Post, majority of Canadians view China as biggest security threat with global war of attrition already underway. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.